Welcome to Consumer Rights Talk. I'm your host, Adam Deutsch from Northeast Law Group in Western Massachusetts. Welcome back, and if this is your first time listening, well then, thank you for joining us. Please follow on iTunes so that you always have the most up-to-date episodes as they are released. Today's guest is Ron Burge of Dayton, Ohio. Ron is a trailblazer among consumer rights attorneys and has done so much in his career to mentor and improve the climate for attorneys doing similar work. I had the honor of speaking with Ron for nearly an hour as he discussed how he went from being a radio disc jockey to becoming one of the leading auto fraud lawyers in the country. Along the way, Ron picked up great lessons on how to connect with a client's story during representation. Always looking to benefit those around him, Ron began compiling attorney fee statistics in the 1990s by conducting a survey that has grown over the years to become one of the best tools for any attorney practicing law under fee-shifting statutes. Available at attorneyfeestudy.com, the survey has changed the landscape and made it easier for attorneys to collect an appropriate hourly rate at the end of a case. The study has been cited in federal courts across the country, and I encourage you to take a look. At the end of our conversation, Ron discusses co-counseling, consulting work, and mentoring that he does with other attorneys. Ron can be reached on Twitter at Ron Burge and by visiting BurgeLaw.com in addition to his many other websites, which are uh, mentioned during the course of the interview. Well, without further ado, here it is. I hope you enjoy. Ron, thank you so much for joining me today uh, across halfway across the country over there in Ohio. How are you doing today? Well, it's raining, so it's one of those rainy winter days. It's not freezing, but it's not warm enough, and it's not sunny enough to make you feel like, okay, I don't really want to move to that island I've been thinking about. (laughs) Now, Uh, you're located in Dayton, Ohio, right? Yes. And how long have you been there? I actually was born in Dayton, and uh, the Air Force took me away to a couple of states, and uh, then after graduating uh, from college, I came back to Dayton to go to law school, and and just stayed here ever since. So I've been here since, oh wow, uh, I guess I moved back uh, in 73, somewhere around 1973, and I've been here ever since. And, you know, about how you came into the law, uh, did you know that you always wanted to be a lawyer? Matter of fact, I didn't. Uh, I was actually on the road to becoming a disc jockey uh, in California where I was going to school. In fact, I went to uh, broadcasting college there in San Diego at the university. And in the course of that, a retired Federal Communications Commissioner uh, came to teach a course. And uh, I was asked if I would uh, work with him as an assistant uh, since he was new to that scene. And in the course of that, I discovered that uh, Broadcasting can be a lot of fun, but actually there, there's more intellectual challenge as a mass communications lawyer. Uh, and so I got interested in that and decided I would go to law school to become a mass communications lawyer. And that sort of didn't go the direction I thought it was going to head. Well, you know, I, I have a similar story in terms of, uh, you know, not necessarily being a, a disc jockey, but... I was uh, certainly an amateur musician myself and played in in bands during college and high school. And I had several friends that ended up pursuing it professionally. And I figured, gee, uh, I don't really want to go on tour, but why don't I become the lawyer that they need, right? 
Um, and of course, that didn't pan out either. <laughs> uh, but it, it, it is such fun in the music industry. I, I was a music director at a radio station um, in the middle of California uh, and had a number of instances of going down to RCA and other studios uh, for seminars, uh, industry-related seminars. And uh, it was a blast to watch them drag musicians in that were walking by. Uh, the conference rooms and just drag them in to uh, have them do a few songs or whatever off the cuff and it was really really interesting a lot of fun that's great so you okay so you're in the military you were in the air force you said yes okay and then uh you get out of the air force you go to college in california and then you move back to ohio for law school is that right that's right all right so you go through law school, and then uh, I was looking over your bio a little bit, and it looks like you've been on your own for uh, roughly 30 years, but this was not your first job, right? You started off with someone else first? Yeah, I started off in a small law firm that did, uh, in fact, while I, while I was going to law school, I started clerking for them very early. Uh, I literally ran into uh, the founder of the firm at a convenience store, and uh, I hadn't seen him since he was a lifeguard, and I was one of the kids that swam in the pool. Uh, and he had me start with him, and uh, it was just fascinating to watch a small law firm that had uh, a lot of specialty work being done um, and being able to assist in the trial process, which really is what made me decide I wanted to be a trial lawyer when I saw the uh, first couple of trials with him. And what was that practice originally, the subject matter that you mostly dealt with? It was a, it was a general practice firm with three attorneys. Uh, I was the only law clerk. Um, they specialized in legal malpractice and medical malpractice and criminal law. Uh, they, there were a lot of appointments uh, as independent counsel uh independent prosecutors handling cases that the local prosecutor could not handle for political reasons or other evidentiary reasons uh, that I had the opportunity to watch. A couple of racketeering cases uh, and claims that were really interesting also to work on and watch. Uh, but interestingly enough, there was no consumer law work to speak of other than just the normal run-of-the-mill bankruptcy work. So I didn't really have any exposure to the area of law that I'm in now. And where was the big change for you? What brought you into the ring of representing consumers? Well, that happened when I passed the bar and uh, became an attorney. I went up to be sworn in uh, in uh, the state capitol, and quite literally when I returned to the office, they had the first client waiting for me. Uh, and it was a guy who had a defective uh, Chrysler that was brand new. There was no lemon law at that point. It was just uh, warranty law and such. Uh, but nobody knew what to do with him, so they decided to let the new lawyer handle him. Uh, and he, the client, uh, just a, everybody's grandfather and grandmother, they were a wonderful couple, uh, but he had a very legitimate case, and it got me interested. That case actually went to trial uh, as a young lawyer, and I was up against a very seasoned Chrysler attorney, and after the verdict, as we were packing up our briefcases or whatever, and he shook my hand and all that, and then he made the comment that no one had ever taken him to trial before. 
And I thought to myself, gosh, this is fun. Not only can you win, but you can beat an old-time lawyer who's been around for decades. Hmm. So I decided this is, this is not a bad way to enjoy life and make a living. That's amazing. So your first case out the bat you take to trial and you're successful. And it was fun. <laughs> that is serendipitous. I mean, that's, that's really amazing, right? That was a sign that, that you got to pursue this. Yeah, that, that, you know, that was a very clear indication that you know, there's a lot of fun that you can do in this, doing the right thing, so to speak. And uh, on top of that, you can go up against attorneys that are of a generation older than you and still beat them and make things come out right for people who otherwise simply wouldn't be able to fight back. You know, I, I had a similar experience only to the extent that when, when I got out of law school, it was 2010 and I was in New Jersey and uh, there were no jobs. I mean, this is, you know, to take a turn on my story, but there were just, I went into law school and it was a 90% placement rate for jobs. I got out of law school and it was, I don't know, maybe a 40% placement rate. So there was nothing to do except there was a gigantic foreclosure crisis. And so I began representing homeowners against banks in defense of foreclosures. And it was the same type of situation where I was going against people who were doing foreclosure work for 15, 20, 30 years, and all of a sudden having some success beating them. And, and boy, as a young attorney out the gate trying to get experience, I mean, that is quite a motivating thing. To, it absolutely is, I mean, especially when you not only are getting some experience, but you're winning your cases, which is emotionally satisfying and, and helps your ego at a point in time in your career when you need it, uh, when most attorneys need it anyway. But the, the real thing is you're helping people, and you happen to hit just the right time because of the change in perspective that lawyers and consumers and society in general took toward the mortgage companies. I mean, the timing was perfect for that. That's right. That's right. So, okay, so you have this first client, and we're in the mid-80s, early 80s at this point? Uh, yeah, or very early 80s. And so what what happens next? Because you're still with this law firm. Um, do you take on more auto cases at that point? Well, I take on more auto cases, more consumer law cases, and I become the, the bankruptcy attorney uh, doing uh, a large amount of bankruptcy work uh, for that county, which was a relatively rural county. Uh, but basically, I, I became something of a specialist in bankruptcy law, uh, including uh, litigation for stay violations in bankruptcy court. Uh, but really, what I loved most of all was getting in a courtroom where you have a consumer who's got a bad car or been ripped off by a local dealer and putting the pieces of the puzzle together so that a jury can see what really happened as the truth of the, of the case. That just me to me was always a fascinating thing to do. And are you particularly interested in cars? I mean, are, did you grow up with you know real car culture? I actually didn't grow up with a deep car culture at all, but I always had an interest in them. Um, my first car was a 1959 Ford Fairlane 500 convertible that was a blast. It didn't run worth a darn, but it was a lot of fun. <laughs> And it sounds like the way you were describing it is the storytelling and the kind of putting the pieces of the puzzle together is something that you find really rewarding of your work. Yeah, I think that is very 
very true, and particularly in consumer law. Uh, in consumer law, you're always wearing the white hat, so to speak. You're on the right side of a moral, moral question, not just a legal question. Uh, but you also get to put together the mystery of what occurred, uh, because obviously people don't agree themselves. And so if you can actually pull out the truth and put together the events as they occurred and see what was happening in the back room that nobody talks about, so to speak, you're able to come to an understanding of where the truth lays and then presenting that to a jury in a way that helps them to understand it and dig up some of the information on their own to piece together the story accurately, uh, which is really all a lawyer wants. All you want is for a chance to put your case in front of a jury and let them call the shots. Mm -hmm. And I want to circle back to ask you more about how you develop those stories uh, but first, I just want to continue the timeline because you had said, uh, obviously, I know that you went out on your own and you, uh, you know, you have Burge Law Office is your firm now. And um, so you eventually chose to leave that firm and go out on your own. W- what led you to take that risk and make that decision? Well, I left after um, four years working there so that I could develop my own practice and do what I wanted to do, uh, and I felt like I could uh, make a decent living at it uh, and enjoy it without quite the restrictions. I was working a long day, very long day, uh, very many days, uh, I just felt like getting a paycheck for that just didn't sit well with me, frankly. Although the firm was great, the uh, founder of the firm uh, has always been one of the people who had the most impact on me, uh, particularly watching his trial work. I think the the main reason I wanted to, to get out into doing consumer law was I saw in his trial work uh, theater, hmm. you know, simply theater, the, the way everything would come together and the way he, he his style, his mannerisms, he... Uh, in all of my life, I have seen a lot of lawyers over the years. Uh, this is my 40th year of practice, uh, and I have never seen anyone who was as good a trial lawyer. Uh, and the best example I can give you, and, and probably the one single incident that I observed that made me decide, you know, I think I want to do that, was when in the midst of a, a uh, criminal case where he was representing the defendant in a case. Uh, and there was the usual jury and the judge, longtime judge sitting on the bench and everybody's going through things. And he is in the midst of direct examination of a witness. And all of a sudden, one of the jurors stuck their hand up looking at him. Uh, and everybody stops, of course, because it's kind of like, what, what's this all about? Uh, well, it isn't the attorney's place to ask the juror to direct or directly address the juror or anything like that. It's the judge's courtroom. So the judge asked, yeah, do you have a question? And the juror put their hand down and looked back at Jim, the attorney, uh, who I'm talking about, mm-hmm. and asked if they could take a break to go to the restroom. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and there, and we talked about it uh, later on after the trial was 
is over, there, there's a remarkable thing that happens in a trial. And the presence that you, as an attorney, bring to the courtroom and the ability to control the courtroom and to do it without really looking like you're controlling the courtroom, uh, there's an art to that. And it has every much to do with winning the case as the actual evidence does, because it's all about people. And it just feels right when it all comes together. I've never had a single trial that didn't have the aha moment, the moment when something happened where I thought, oh, God, that was good, or that was really nicely done, or that that witness said just the right thing at just the right time, or the question was perfect, or whatever. There was all, every single trial was always had that moment where I never forgot that that was what made that case. And when you talk about that moment, is it a moment that you often anticipate it to be, or is it oh, no, usually... never moments you anticipate. <laughs> uh, hardly ever is it something that you anticipate is going to happen the way it happens, when it happens, and how it happens. Uh, and that is part of what makes being a trial lawyer such a blast, particularly a consumer trial lawyer, because it, it's always unpredictable. I think that all of us tell our clients that you never know what a jury's going to do until they come back out and tell you what they just did. Uh, and they decide the verdict, uh, but the the experience of it is just not like anything. And what I've often told uh, young lawyers and, and my wife and, and a couple of times at seminars and whatever is that uh, I very firmly believe that if you find the right thing that you can enjoy more than anything else, then that's what you need to do. If you can make a living at it, it's even better. And for me, there have been only two things that ever gave me that euphoric moment. Uh, one of them is being in a courtroom in a trial. Uh, not like anything else. Uh, but that euphoric moment only came in one other time when I was doing any other kind of a job, and that was when I was a disc jockey in California. Hmm. Uh, those two things were, were just the most... Uh, incredible uh, experiences uh, in terms of having a, a fun time and at the same time not all fun. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of preparation and work that goes into putting on a trial. Uh, believe it or not, the same sort of thing is the way disc jockeys and radio, live radio works too. There's an awful lot that goes into it before it happens. Sure. And there's a tremendous amount of anxiety before you start a trial. Uh, people have no clue who don't actually go through that, uh, what it really is to be a trial lawyer and to have that, that personal investment. And I think that's, that is a large part of the difference between a consumer law trial attorney and uh, defense attorneys who typically represent uh, moneyed corporations and the tall buildings and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we on this side of the table have a vested interest in our case in an emotional sense. Uh, I've never met a consumer lawyer who liked to lose. And how do you connect to that emotional sense? You know, we could tie this into the, the storytelling aspect that yeah, I know you love. It goes exactly to that storytelling. You, you know, you have to begin to understand the story. You have to begin to realize what the truth of it is and how things happened and what happened. And that requires that innate curiosity. Uh, I think that the strongest 
and strongest thing that they have to have is the ability to then let that play out, to orchestrate it. Uh, a good trial lawyer is the conductor of an orchestra, and the orchestra is all the witnesses and the evidence and all the other players in the courtroom. Uh, bringing all that together and putting it all together in a way that the the um, audience, if you will, which is the jury, mm-hmm. uh, that they come to understand what the truth of it actually is. So what, what types of things do you do to work with your clients to develop the story and to help them become comfortable? Because you're, you're certainly telling it, but like you said, your witnesses really play a huge role in telling that story as well. You're the conductor. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, they have to be comfortable. Uh, and most people, uh, they're concerned, uh, if not outright scared, of the idea of going into a courtroom. Uh, and I think it's really, really important to get them to relax and to view it differently than, oh, God, it's a courtroom. Uh, instead, what I always explain to clients is that when you get up on that witness stand, uh, there's a couple of key things you need to remember. One of them is that at the end of the trial, the only people who get to vote on what happens is the jury. So you have to make eye contact with that jury. Uh, if by the time you get finished testifying, you have not looked at every juror, eyeball to eyeball, then the odds are you're probably not going to win, or you're going to have a tough time winning. You know, they have to see you on that witness stand as as an empathetic soul who has gone through an experience that they can understand, uh, which means that the story has to be told mostly by the client and by the witnesses and the documents and the evidence that happen to fall into place to tell the rest of the story. How early in a case do you start working with the client talking about, you know, being in the courtroom or being at a deposition? You know, how early on? I always explain uh, the process and the alternatives and the way things are going to go in the course of this litigation uh, at the outset, but I don't try to emphasize any of it. Uh, I think it's important at the beginning that the client understand that, yes, this is a, a lawsuit and, yes, it goes through a specific process and there's lots of things that have to be done, but don't worry about it. Almost all of that is going to end up having to be done by me. You're going to be involved in it in a couple of key points, and long before those occur, you and I will sit down and we'll talk about what it is and how it's going to happen and how it works so you'll have an understanding of the process and what it is that is expected of you at each stage. Uh, I think it's important not to scare the heck out of a client uh, by talking about trials at the beginning of a case, since most of them don't go to trial anyway. Um, But the reality is I think that it can cause undue concern. Uh, Clients don't really want to go into a courtroom and have a trial for the most part. Very rarely do they actually want to go have a trial. Uh, What they want to have is a chance to say their piece and to get the truth out and then settle up whatever the situation is and go home. Uh, The trial is the the result of being forced into having to go into the courtroom and air all of that out uh, because you can't get the other side to see enough of the truth to be concerned about the consequences if they don't settle. I think so I, well I typically will not really give them a, a deposition prep or a, uh, a preparation uh, for the courtroom, so to speak, until we get very close to that, because I, I want them to be more relaxed. Uh, and the way I always explain it, frankly, when, when they're getting ready to go into a deposition or a trial, either one, I'll go back to the same scenario and I'll explain, them, 
you know, these are the key things you're going to be asked about, da 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 However, uh, at some point, somebody will ask you to just simply tell what happened at some moment or and in the whole history of it. You know. Well, when that occurs, what you need to do is think about it as though you're sitting at your kitchen table with a cup of coffee on a Saturday morning mm. with a neighbor who doesn't know a whole lot about any of this. And what you're going to do is just simply start off by saying, let me tell you what happened to me when I went down to that car dealer or whatever the, the scenario is. But just simply think about it as though you're sitting there with a cup of coffee in the morning with a neighbor that you don't know very well. And you're just going to tell them what happened to you. Because mm-hmm. uh, I think if you can take that that uh, nervous consumer client, take them down a notch from what's occurring into a scenario that they might be more at ease with and relate that to them as being the fundamental way you want them to step into the witness box and testify, mm-hmm. you can get them to relax. And you know, if they look at the jury and they tell what they feel in their bones, the jury will understand. That's great advice. It, it reminds me of some of the the writing that I've I've read from Jerry Spence, the way that he would uh, mm-hmm. work with his clients to set up. It it really resonates with that. Yeah, and I, I've I've heard about that. I've never been to his training, and I've heard from others who have been that it is that kind of sort of an experience. Uh, and when you think about it, it makes perfect sense because when we're all sitting down uh, with a friend or a neighbor or whatever else. Uh, it's a relaxing atmosphere, uh, and and when you relax, you tend to let it hang out, so to speak, and just simply talk the way things are. Mm-hmm. You know, one of one of the very early trials I had. Afterwards, uh, we were allowed to talk to the jury, and and I asked them. Uh, uh, this woman had bought a, a car that had been wrecked and repaired. Uh, bought it on her own, then went home and showed it to her husband, who happened to be a body shop guy. And he spotted the problems immediately with it. Uh, and when it came to trial, uh, and he testified about it, uh, he did very, very nice job explaining everything A to Z. And then after they won the verdict, and I was talking to the jurors, and one of the jurors said, I knew that uh, she was telling the truth all along. Uh, and the reason, I asked him why, and he said, well, the reason was real simple. When her husband got up there and testified, you could hear he didn't hesitate. He just simply spilled it all out. Hmm. And the way he was talking, it was so crystal clear that he knew exactly what had occurred, and he was just telling it the way it was. You know, getting a jury to understand that a client is telling the truth, quite often is just simply getting the client in a position to where they're comfortable telling it the way it happened. Interesting. And the overall majority of your cases are, are Lemon Law-based, is that right? That's what I cut my teeth on, so to speak, for, for decades. And uh, in the last 10 years, roughly, uh, I have turned my focus uh, to a specific kind of a vehicle as opposed to any anything that was a lemon. Um, after they created the lemon laws, it became a little easier to fight uh, defective vehicle manufacturers um, because you had presumptions that you could work with. If it was in three types in the shop, well, and it was presumed to be a lemon. Uh, if it was out of service for 30 days or whatever the definition might be in, in your particular state. Uh, so it, it was much easier to climb the mountain in order to go down the hill. Mm. Uh, the challenge, because I had handled so many cases before lemon laws came about, I recognized that the challenge existed 
made when you didn't have aluminum law. So what I do now is a kind of a motor vehicle that doesn't typically have any lemon law protection, but they're just as defectively built, if not far, far worse, frankly. And that's recreational vehicles. Uh, virtually 100% of my time is now just working for consumers that are fighting to make manufacturers take back bad RVs. And typically, is this used market or new? New. Okay. Uh, I do very little used work because uh, used work involves dealers and, and sales fraud, and I do some of that. Uh, but frankly, there is so much money to be made by dealerships selling new ones that that's usually where some of the fraud occurs, but the defective nature of the vehicles is just rampant uh, in that industry. Ron, so how do you find your clients? Well, back in the late 80s, uh, this thing called the Internet came along, and I realized very quickly that uh, uh, it looked like that was where there was going to be uh, future marketing efforts eventually concentrating. And so I got uh, a couple of website URLs that uh, ended up being very much uh, the focal point of what I ended up doing later. Back in, before the internet, it's really interesting because back before the internet, most of my clients, which I always track, most of my clients actually came from other attorneys and clients who referred them to me. Uh, And it was a ratio of something like 90% to 95% of my clients came to me in that way. After the internet really took off, it totally flip-flopped. And it became now something in the mid to high 90%. Uh, high 90s come to me by way of the internet Uh, and it's not nearly what it was before so the the websites that I have are the lemonlaw.com ohiolemonlaw.com kentuckylemonlaw.com those are the three things and the three areas that I concentrate on although I've got something in the vicinity of about 40 different websites under different names Uh, but the RV Lemon Law one that just has been around so long, and it's got so much content and everything that uh, anybody that gets on the internet, that's pretty much where we go. That's great. Uh, so do you have advice for uh, anyone who's starting out in terms of you know going out on their own and, and how to find clients? Just... Oh, yeah. That, that's a real thing that people who are coming out of law school need mm-hmm. to understand because it's not ir- not nearly the way it used to be. I think every generation has a different way of trying to figure out how to market themselves. Uh, at this point in life, there's, there's no question that the Internet is still the dominant media that you need to master. Uh, the real thing about it, though, is that at this point in time, social media and device uh, media is, is far more important. By that, by device, what I mean is that uh, once upon a time, when people wanted to find something, they looked it up in a phone book. Mm-hmm. Then along came the time when they just simply started looking it up on their computer, on the internet. And phone books quite literally sort of faded away. Uh, well, now we've moved to the point where social media is the place where people look up things. And when they look up things, they do it with a handheld device. Uh, they do it with a portable iPad or a cell phone or whatever, but uh, the majority of uh, searching for things nowadays is occurring with a cell phone. Uh, 
it is that you've got to be upfront uh, in a potential client's mind, and the only way you get there is by being somehow in their face on the internet, so that they see that you're on that first page, or that there's something unique about you. I saw that you've done several videos uh, as well. Uh, there was one that I saw where, where you were walking around a car and pointing out how the hood didn't line up and explaining to someone that that's you know a, a telltale sign that it had been in an accident and that at some point the hood had been removed and then replaced. Mm-hmm. There's lots of things like that, and, and I think that uh, video in particular has now gotten to the point where video interaction with potential clients is really important. I think that if you're a young attorney, you need to establish a social presence real quick, and YouTube and video is part of that. Uh, I think that uh, if, I, if I was to be asked, okay, what's the website I need to concentrate on first, uh, I'd say that in spite of everything negative one hears about Facebook, the reality is it is the elephant that you need to learn to master. So I think that you need to get into Facebook, you need to get into LinkedIn, you need to get into Twitter, and particularly you need to get into and work very hard at Avo. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I think, I think Avo.com, particularly five years ago, it was really the place where you could walk in and put a billboard with your own advertisement, so to speak, uh, being nothing more than your expertise. Uh, you could put that in front of potential clients who were looking for exactly what you were doing. Right. Uh, there's much more on Avo now by a whole lot more lawyers, but the reality of it is that you can really make your presence known there as a young attorney uh, with a far more neutral background as opposed to uh, what you might find elsewhere. It's true. They, they do a good job of handling the SEO for you. You know, no, you, they really do. Yeah. They really do. You know, I've had a lot of clients who, who simply put a question uh, in their browser, uh, on their search engine or whatever it is that they're doing, and they end up looking at an answer to that question that I posted on Avo. And that's exactly the kind of thing that you need to do so that people know that you do have the answer to the question that they happen to be looking for. Uh, so Abba did a marvelous job of creating a huge database uh, that was searchable by all the engines. And luckily, the attorneys who got into that and who continue to work that, they're benefiting from it. So when, when people find you and they come to your office, uh, how do you handle intake? Are you meeting with every potential client? That's another thing that has changed, and I think it's something that younger lawyers uh, are more attuned to uh, and that is that once upon a time, every client came in and sat down and went through a one-hour to an hour-and-a-half interview where I would gather all the information, and I had a specific process I would go through to gather everything I needed to know and then tell them everything they needed to know. That doesn't work that way anymore. Uh, long after the Internet became as dominant as it is, the process has turned around where now I have two ladies who have been with me a very long time, they know exactly what it is that I need to know, and typically they will gather all the documents, get the answer to the key questions, and then sit down with me, go over it all, and I will tell them, okay, these are the claims, this is where we're going to handle it, and this is what you need to do next and all. And they will then deal with the client in uh, signing them up, if you will, mm-hmm. to uh, client status, and then I gather all the paperwork. Uh, 
night or whatever's necessary for the next step and go from there. I will not typically talk directly to any potential client until we've been retained, unless there's some peculiarity to it that causes me to want to get ahead of the process. Uh, and, and I think that's a smart move, frankly, for young lawyers to take. Um, and I know that they're probably the least able to do it that way. Uh, but the reality is that there's a strong tendency in this business for young lawyers to give away their time in order to get the business coming in. Sure. So talking on the phone for free, answering questions for free, uh, I think a young lawyer has to be careful about how much they do that, where they may be giving away everything and not earning enough to make a living and come back to the office tomorrow and keep, keep the lights on. And speaking of earning, how does your firm generate income? Well, there's different ways the cases could be handled, but in the cases that I handle, they're all fee-shifting, which means that these consumer protection laws uh, that we use typically will give the consumer the right to recover whatever their damages are in a case, and also their attorney fees and sometimes litigation costs as well, Mm -hmm. uh, not just court costs, to recover all of that from the losing defendant in the case. So the manufacturer that builds a bad RV or the dealership that lies in order to get something sold and sells junk or or bad title vehicles or wrecked cars rebuilt or whatever it might be, they can be held responsible for having to pay the attorney fees. So then the attorney has to decide how do you want to handle that kind of a case. Uh, And there's several different approaches, whether you do it on a contingency fee or you do it on a fee-shifting approach. Uh, and whether you charge a retainer or you don't, uh, and costs. You know, the, the advice I would give any young attorney is that no matter what you do, always make sure that the client understands that they have to pay all the costs of litigation, mm-hmm. no matter what's happening with the attorney fee piece of it, whether you're charging them by the hour or contingency or whatever it is. Um, I, I just have an absolute feeling that the client must be vested in the case. They must be invested personally in the fight so that they have something at risk in addition to you as an attorney. It's really interesting to hear you say that. I've heard a lot of you know conflicting theories from uh, attorneys operating in the fee-shifting realm, and my gut instinct is the same as yours. It's okay if I'm going to take the risk for my own income to be on contingency, but I always do feel like by the client you know, at least paying the cost. They certainly have skin in the game and they're more likely to be there when I need to reach them to prosecute their own case. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the the client who is perfectly willing to fight till hell freezes over, go through the trial, go through the court of appeals, appeal to the Supreme Court, then come back for a new trial if they can win there. The client who is willing to fight, 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 is usually the one that doesn't have anything to lose. You got. I, I think that the client uh, needs to be invested in the fight, so that they understand your risk as an attorney in taking the case on anything other than a paying approach, an hourly rate approach, which most consumers can't afford. And do, are you turning away a lot of clients? I mean, are you careful about who you pick, or anyone who comes in the door gets to work with you? No, I, that's that's not the case at all. I am in fact picky about it. We have uh, certain minimum standards of what a case has to have. Characteristics of a good case, you might think of it that way, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I have
been grossly obscene in the case's facts, it's not going to be a case that I am going to take. Uh, on the other hand, there are some cases that we've taken that uh, didn't have a whole lot of money but had some really gross facts to them that something needed to be done to make things turn out right for the people involved. Um, and I'm flexible on, on cases depending on the merits of the case. Um, I remember giving a, a seminar once with uh, John Gale, an attorney in Virginia, uh, on what makes for a good case. Great guy. Uh, and he said something I never forgot. Uh, and a lot of other people have heard ever since then from him and from me for that matter. He said that in order to have a good case, you have to have a sexy case. And what that means is you got to have a case that can get a jury excited, that can get a jury seeing the truth and wanting to do something about it. Uh, and I, I think he's right in a large part. That is exactly what you need if you're going to risk everything and go in a courtroom and have a trial. It all comes back to that storytelling, right? I mean, just okay. having a statutory violation is, you know, maybe enough to merit filing suit, but it's not going to get you where you want to go in terms of chasing down a jury and all that. Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, you can win that kind of a case, but you're not really going to win that kind of a case. Uh, you, can, you can get a verdict in your favor, but you're not going to have anybody go home and tell their friends and neighbors what they did all week is sitting in that jury box. Uh, you're not going to have the judge look at you and smile and at times say, you know, that was a good one. Uh, and, and your reputation in this business is critically important. Uh, if people think that you handle junk cases, then you'll be known as a junk lawyer and you'll get the earnings of a junk lawyer. Even when you have a fee-shifting case and the judge looks at you and thinks to himself, geez. Uh, on the other hand, if you are in the courtroom and you show the judge and you show the jury and you show the other attorney uh, that you will fight and you will fight because it's what needs to be done in order to get a fair and just result in a disputed situation, then they'll all go home remembering who you were and what you did. And that will only lead to more clients. And it will also lead to defendants beginning to be a little more fearful of you, hmm. uh, which also feeds back into the entire process, too. So, Ron, I have a couple more questions. We'll start to wrap up. Um, do you ever co-counsel with people outside of your firm? I do. Uh, I do that. And, and I also uh, counsel attorneys on their cases at times when they, they call me and ask. Matter of fact, I, I had an attorney call this morning. Uh, he's going to be testifying uh, as an expert in an attorney fee dispute in a fee-shifting case that they won for a consumer. Uh, and his partner won it, and he's going to be talking about the attorney fee aspect. Uh, I've also done that uh, with other attorneys where we are fighting uh, consumer cases with RVs or others. Uh, in fact, I'm doing that now in uh, Nevada, mm -hmm. California, uh, Arizona. Uh, just finished up uh, North Carolina. I'm doing that in Pennsylvania.
as far as I'm concerned, uh, I, I don't have any problem at all with trying to share some of that with them. I'll come back to my home state, and maybe they'll be able to do some of that good work there on their own. That's fantastic. Now, one of the things that you mentioned in there... There are never enough consumer yeah. law lawyers, you know? They just really aren't. It's something that I've learned from, from getting involved with NACA and, and attending the NCLC conferences is... Uh, it's just remarkable how helpful the community seems to be, no matter whether you're a new attorney or an older one coming into uh, the consumer rights practice. There really is that feeling that uh, there are more consumers by far than attorneys. And so the level oh, of competition... Absolutely is it, true, Adam. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, uh, and there, there needs to be uh, more participation. Another thing I would tell a young attorney who's thinking of getting into consumer law work is that going to those annual NCLC conferences, uh, joining NACA, talking to people, uh, getting that communication with people who have been in the trenches, either for a long time or a short time, it teaches you an awful lot that you cannot learn about this business anywhere else. Uh, And the beauty of it is consumer lawyers, we generally recognize there aren't enough of us, so we don't mind sharing. Uh, and that's a, that's a far different cry from the personal injury world and some of the others where there's just tons of lawyers uh, and everybody is, is very interested in trying to stake out their territory uh, in this area of practice. And there's tons of clients. Right, and right. Not enough lawyers to handle them all. It's, uh, everybody, everybody goes through life and gets ripped off at one point or another, you know? It's the truth, and it's amazing how many different specific areas. I mean, you've carved out a, a particular you know, niche area with the RV law, and it's, it's fantastic. And I just want to clarify, those two organizations are the National Consumer Law Center and the National Association of Consumer Advocates. And Yes, and if, if you do bankruptcy work, then it's the National Association of Consumer Bankruptcy Attorneys, uh, NACBA. Uh, that works over there on the the bankruptcy law side, which has its own problems, some of which cross over into consumer law in a more general context, like credit rights, uh, FDCPA, uh, debt collection practices, credit Mm -hmm. reporting, and all that. So, you know, Ron, the the last thing I want to talk to you about is, is really the thing that you might be most known for, and I can't believe we've made it this long without even mentioning it, but you started years ago developing an attorney fee survey report that is nationwide and it is just such an incredible resource and it's been cited all over the country by you know different federal courts and and state courts as well Uh, and you know the idea is if you and this is certainly searchable you can find it at uh, the NCLC website and What's remarkable is when you go through the survey, you know, you've managed to, to lay out the median, you know, attorney fee rates and, and also for how long someone's been in practice and for their particular practice area and geographical location in all 50 states and then sometimes very specific uh, city locations within a state. I was looking today, I'm in Massachusetts. You have, you know, both Boston and the Springfield, Massachusetts area. And I uh, just want to ask, you know, how did this come about and, and how did it grow over the years? That started uh, a long time ago. Uh, this is the 20th year of doing that survey reporting work. Uh, and at the very beginning, 
what happened was uh, I had a case, a uh, car case, uh, lemon law case, where the manufacturer fought it very, very hard. And then at the end, we ended up with a disputed, contested attorney fee hearing to boot. Uh, and in the course of that, I realized I needed to establish and prove up what a reasonable hourly rate would be for me in order to get the court to agree, okay, that's what your hourly rate is, and then we'll calculate it out, and this is what they now owe you for attorney fees. Uh, and doing all the research trying to come up with it, I realized there was nothing out there uh, at all. Uh, there was no survey work. There was no general reporting of hourly rates for consumer law attorneys. There was literally nothing. Uh, you could call around and talk other, to other attorneys and find out, but that was a very inefficient and time-consuming and difficult way to figure out what you're doing. So at that stage, I did some digging around and found this uh, law, uh, law firm company over in Pennsylvania called Altman Weil. Uh, and Altman Weil uh, was basically the number crunchers for the legal industry. Uh, they had analyzed everything, typically with big law firms, uh, but they knew how to do uh, analysis in order to come up with uh, hourly rates. And during the process of that, I hired them to do the analysis to tell me what my reasonable hourly rate ought to be. Uh, and after something close to $9,000 worth of uh, time, uh, they gave me the hourly rate and explained exactly how they came up with it and everything else. And I realized, you know, Young lawyers, let alone the older lawyers, are not going to be able to afford tossing out $9,000 in uh, the mid-90s or the early 90s, let alone later on in life, in order to figure out what the hourly rate ought to be that they should be asking. Uh, so I started doing uh, survey work at that point uh, and didn't really um, try to, to uh, locate all the consumer law community. Uh, instead, I just worked with NACA and NCLC in order to get as much as I could in that direction for data to work with. And then year after year, I would do surveys and then compile it into a report. And then uh, in 2012, it started really developing into a larger database of information. Uh, and the last published report uh, for consumer lawyers that one was uh, 400 and some pages. Uh, and at the same time, I was able to get enough information and data to create a bankruptcy, a consumer law bankruptcy survey report. Uh, and this year, uh, we are about to close the survey uh, so that we can, I can begin doing the number crunching and then drafting of the report. Uh, and the data participation level has almost doubled now. That's amazing. Just last year. Ron, so how can people find, uh, in terms of where you gather the, you know, the data, if they want to input data and they haven't done so already, where can they go? Yeah, they can take part in the survey itself by going to the survey website where there is a link to the survey. Uh, and that website is just simply attorneyfeesurvey.com. Uh, and at the top of the page, there's a link that you can click on, and it'll open up the survey and then guide you through all the questions. 
I just want to say thank you because as uh, as someone who has been practicing law for not quite 10 years yet, uh, it's still difficult for me to understand exactly how to value my time. And you've really helped me uh, to gain perspective on that once I found your survey and started looking at it. And I'm certainly very appreciative of the time and effort that you put in starting 20 years ago to get this going. Quality of life is a quality of life. Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands, you know, Guam. You look at some of those places, and oh yeah, it's probably wonderful seeing the palm trees. But the problem is, they don't make that much money in those places on an hourly rate approach, not at all. Which is sort of surprising. But I guess you know you have to give up something if you're going to go surfing. (laughs) That's great. Now, Ron, uh, is there anything else that you want listeners to know? Do you want to give out a, a Twitter handle or any other way to contact you or uh, anything else? Um, well, they can, they can just simply contact me, uh, uh, Ron, at rvlemonlaw.com. Uh, I, I encourage people who have fee, uh, fee fights, as I call them, motions coming up to feel free to call or email me for advice. Uh, I've had a lot of attorney fee hearings, and I've testified in a lot of attorney fee hearings for other people's too. And it, it's important, I think, that consumer law lawyers do their job right. And part of that job is presenting the attorney fee motion properly, uh, so that they don't ask for too much, but they also don't ask for too little. They ask for what's fair and reasonable. Ron, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you, Adam. I've enjoyed it very much, and I hope we had some good information for people.